If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, we're going to be here, as I said, a few weeks ago for just a few weeks. I know some of you keep asking, when are you going to be in Revelation? Well, I'll tell you why I'm not there today, because today was actually the start date. As I'm going through Revelation, if you're there, you can even turn to Revelation chapter 2. I kept coming across this familiar phrase, this familiar sentence. You find it in chapter 2, verse 9, I know your works. Verse 13, I know your works. Next church, Thyatira, verse 19, I know your works. Chapter 3, I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. Seven times. Seven times he says that to the church. The word know means uh, uh, precise knowledge. The omniscient, all-powerful one, Jesus Christ, says, I know exactly where you're at. And that just became a burden to my heart. It was like, wow, we judge according to our standard of success of what a church should be. And yet God, Christ is looking at each church and saying, I know your works. I know exactly where you're at. And then he gives commendation. He gives correction. And it just kept burning in my heart. You know what? Let's make sure Alfred Allman is where we ought to be because he knows our works. And so before we actually get into Revelation, I just thought, you know, let's just go and very quickly in three weeks just cover some things in Ephesians chapter 4, which is one of the best scenarios, best um, um, uh, as it were, bullet points to say this is what a church ought to be, okay? So really, we're only going to look at Ephesians 4, ultimately, 4, 1 to 16. But if, you, if you're in Ephesians chapter 1, we can start out by talking about why does the church exist? Why does the church exist? And I, I'd say this, at the very primary level, our purpose is to, is to glorify God. The church of Jesus Christ exists to glorify God. Now, there's a lot of other things that we do, but to glorify God is the key, right? In fact, you even see this in verse 3. Look at that at, in verse, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God the Father, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And again, we've got to make sure it's in Christ. Just as he chose us, there's the calling, there's, that's election there. I know that's a hard uh, doctrine, but it's, it's a very prevalent doctrine, especially in Ephesians. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, if, again, if it's before the foundation of the world, it means we had nothing to do with it. <laughs> before you were born, before you even were thought, he thought of you. That, that we should be holy and, blame, and without blame uh, before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, again, predestined means to plan out a destiny ahead of time as to where you're going to end up. And he's predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. What? Verse 6. This is the key. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. I, I remember going in college, that's almost 30 years ago, and I, was, I always loved that phrase, accepted in the beloved. I don't know where you are in your own family and growing up and your own parents and maybe your father, mother, grandfather, uncle, great aunt didn't really accept you. But you know what? In Christ we are accepted in the beloved. But the point is, is that he did all of this, what? To the praise of the glory of his grace. If you just skip down for time's sake, verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ should what? Be to the praise of his glory. How about verse 13? In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed. So you believed, and now you're sealed. They used to seal letters back in the first century. It showed that it was authentic. It showed that identification it showed ownership. That's why you would seal it. Well, the Spirit of God has sealed us to show ownership that God owns us now if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Sealed. Verse 14, who is the guarantee. It's the, the guarantee is the pledge, the down payment, 
the first installment, as it were, the, or in, in our terms, as far as marriage, the engagement ring. You give an engagement ring to a girl because you say, you know, I'm going to be back to marry you, right? Now, the Spirit of God is the guarantee, the engagement ring, as it were, of our inheritance. Because we know in Peter that our inheritance is reserved in heaven until the redemption of the purchased possession. Why? Why? Why, did, why do all this? To the praise of his glory. And if you go, you know, just keep going through uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, really chapter 1 or 2 is more like a spiritual biography. You know, he's taken us from chapter 2 verse 1, made us alive, which means we were dead in trespasses and sins. And we were following the course of this world, we're after the prince of the power of the air and, you know, lust of our flesh. And yet, look at verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. By the way, have you been saved? Have you been saved today by grace through faith? Not trying to earn it. In fact, admitting that nothing you can do to earn salvation, but Christ did it all on the cross. And have you put your faith and trust in him? Have you received him as your Savior and as your Lord? But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now there's a reason that we get saved. Again, we got saved for his, to the praise of his glory, but now how do we glorify him? By good works. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works. And, and he goes on in, in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and just talks about how Christ is our peace. He's broke around, broken down the middle wall of partition. All these great and glorious truths. The fact is that there is no difference between a Jew and a Gentile in Christ. The outer wall there that he talks about is the, what used to separate the Jews in the temple from the uh, court of the Gentiles. That's been destroyed. We are one in Christ. If you receive Christ, you've all been placed in the same body. And he ends in chapter 3, the last two verses of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power, by the way, the power is through the Spirit of God that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He starts out with praise. He starts out with glory of God. He ends the chapter, chapter 3, with to him be glory. What's our purpose? Our purpose is to glorify God. That's why he saved us. No, no, he saved us to make us happy. No. <laughs> he saved us to make an easy life. No. He, made us, he saved us to create an, a comfortable life. No. <laughs> By the way, you go down any of those paths, you will be sorely disappointed and frustrated and even wonder, maybe at times, did God even save you? Why? Because that's not the purpose. The purpose is to the praise of his glory. But in chapter 4, verse 1, he now switches gears. And whereas chapters 1 through 3 is talking about our position in Christ, now he's going to be talking about the practical application of that position. And he starts out in verse 1 of chapter 4. I therefore, 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 what's the therefore, therefore? Well, he's now switching. He's saying, listen, because you, are, you, are, because you have been saved for good works and all the glorious truths of your salvation, everything from the calling before the foundation of the world and the sealing of the Spirit of God, and he can accomplish even more than you could ever ask or think. Because of all that, this is how you should respond. This is how you should act as a Christian. See, if we forget what we came from, if we forget our position, we will never be what we ought to be in the practical Christian life. Because if you forget your position, what will happen is you will start looking at the world and this will be all there is and you're going to then judge everything according to you, not according to God. The center of our life is God, not ourselves. Let me read verses 1 to 6. That's all we're going to cover today. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. By the way, if you want a, a key theme for this whole thing is unity. 
The key word for verses 1 to 16 is unity. You, you see it by the fact of how he has placed us all in. Then you see it with the seven uh, ones of verses five, uh, five, six, uh, 5 and 6. You go all the way over to verse 13 till we all come to the unity of the faith. He, the whole driving point of this passage is that the church would be unified. Now I'll give you the, kind of the heads up on this. He's going to tell us, which he did in verse 3, that it's already unified by the Spirit of God. Now what we need to do, according to verse 3, is to keep the unity of the Spirit. See, it's already been unified. We've all been placed into one body. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been, you're in Christ. You've been placed in the body of Christ. That's unity. But now he says you have to exert yourself to keep the unity. That's what Jesus Christ wants. That's what glorifies him. I would trust that if Christ came to this church, I know your works, he would say, and I know that you're exerting yourself to keep the, the unity. You're exerting yourself, and you're going to see. By the way, all this, this uh, practical part of unity, because again, positionally we are unified, one body, right? In Christ. Now practically, are we, are we functioning that way as believers with one another? And again, you're going to... We're going to break this all down. Well, let's look at the call to the worthy life. He says, I therefore the prisoner, the captive, <laughs> the, the bound one. That's what prisoner means, right? You've been taken prisoner. By the way, you're going to see that word, that idea of prisoner in verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. What do you mean? We're his captives. I'm not talking about Satan. He's talking about us. He rescued us from the pit. He rescued us from damnation. Our glorious Lord rescued us, period. I mean, it's like I owe him everything. Don't you owe him everything? So he starts out. Again, verse 1 starts the practical side. Since you are, your position is in Christ, how should you then live? So I beseech you, therefore, I, I, therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you. By the way, that word beseech means uh, a very intense term. Very, very strong. I'm begging you. I'm, I'm pleading with you. <laughs> to what? Walk worthy. That you would walk worthy. By the way, when you look at the word walk, it's talking about daily conduct. It's not like a spurt. It's not like an event. It's a process. That you walk. That you consistently walk. But the word is worthy. That you consistently walk worthy. And the word worthy is the root meaning means a scale. Now you say, what do you mean a scale? Well, you know, if, if you didn't have uh, electronic scales of today, back in the old days, right, you would, let's say, go to the market and you want to buy two pounds of uh, potatoes, right? So they put a two-pound weight on this side, and then they wait and keep putting on the potatoes and, until it equals. And what he's getting at is this. The word worthy is trying to link the entire Bible to, or book together. Excuse me, Ephesians. He's, trying, he's linking chapters 1 through 3, the position in Christ, with 4 through 6, the practicality of walking with Christ. And he's saying the worthy is that they are equal. In other words, that your position or your practice matches your position. In other words, it's a, it's a sad thing when you find a Christian who is hostile and angry and bitter. Why? Because Jesus Christ isn't. Right? You say you're a Christian. Why do you act like this? Let's make sure that our practical side matches our positional side in Christ. That's what the word worthy means. The balancing the scales. In other words, the one side should be equal in weight to what is on the other side. In fact, it should be expected. To say it this way, the Christian should live different. <laughs> You're in Christ. You've got the Spirit of God. You've got God as your Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. I should live different. I'm not living for this world. When you live for the world, you're going to be up and down and all over because everything depends on what the world does. So our practice should be equal with our position. Our practical living should match that spiritual position. 
I like what uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, quote, The apostle was beseeching them and exhorting them always to give equal weight in their lives to doctrine and practice. They must not put all the weight on doctrine and none on practice, nor all the weight on practice and just a little bit on doctrine. Why? Why would you not want to just put all the weight either on doctrine or practice? Because it creates imbalance. It creates lopsidedness. You say, well, we never do that. Well, I'll show you how to do that. Example, because I've been going to Bob's class in Pride and Humility. We've been there how many weeks? It's been a long time, it seems, six, seven weeks. And someone was saying in the class, boy, it seems like it's just popping up all over the place. I can see pride in my life all over the place. Yeah, that's how it should work, right? You don't want to study a truth and not see it happen in your life, right? But does that ever happen in our lives? You study a truth, but it doesn't get applied. And whenever that happens, God just keeps knocking. This last week there was an issue, and I won't even tell you what it is, but it just finally occurred to me, this has been tracking with me for more than 20 years. In one particular area, something that you would say, really? Yep. But it kind of like finally came to the forefront. You know what, Lord? i got to really deal with this issue. Because it doesn't make sense for me to be this if my position in Christ is this. So again, when you go to the Word of God, does it, does it not only uh, convict you, but does it change you? I hope it does. See, if you just have doctrine without practice, you know, you have a lot of head knowledge, that just produces cold orthodoxy. <laughs> you have correctness without vitality. Oh, I can answer the quiz, but do you live the life? I'll tell you, you, your kids see that, that hypocrisy will kill their faith in the sense of a, in a, in a, um, in a human sense, right? What are you talking about? You know the truth and you live like that? But how about this, the reverse of that? What if you have practice without doctrine? That leads to deviation. See, practice would be that you, you depend on your experience, your feelings, no, we've got to have both. We've got to have a solid understanding of what we are in Christ, who we are in Christ, and then that should bleed over into our practice. Let's look at how it should bleed into. He gives us some right attitudes, starting with verse 2. With all, ah, not like a little, we should be full of these things. There's five different ones. With all, first of all, humility. It was funny, well, it says uh, uh, lowliness, but the word is New American humility. Uh, In the pride and humility, they kept bringing up verses, and Brent Reynolds was beside me, and I kept going, yeah, I'm going to cover that today. You know, in the ABF class, they're bringing up another verse, yeah, I'm going to cover that one today. Yeah, I guess maybe this, the Lord wants to implant and then, you know, etch it on our heart. This is what we need to be. Let me give you a little sentence. I don't think I even wrote it down. Because we've been talking about God is glorified. God is glorified when the church is unified. God is glorified when our church is unified. Not individuals. By the way, all five of these have to do with congregation, have to do with group, has to do with the body. It's not an individual. You don't show your humility individually. You show it in the group. God is most glorified when the church is unified. Now again, the church is already unified because they've been brought into the body. Now we're to exert ourselves to keep the unity. God is glorified when this church is unified, unified with each other, functioning like a body. How does that function? First one, humility. We've got to have humility. By the way, the word lowliness means low-mindedness, part of the word broken down uh, uh, to think lowly-mindedness, and the other part is to think with lowliness. In other words, to think, frane, with low. I'm not thinking high, I'm thinking low. It doesn't mean low self-esteem. Don't even, please don't even go there. He's saying, as it, comes, as it comes to myself, the person that's in front of me that's most important is God and others, and I'm not on the screen. That's what he's getting at. He's just saying, listen, it's about God first, others, and I'm not even there. I'm not in the center. I'm not even, it, it's not about me. That's the, like the summary if you want to think of humility. Now again, it's interesting that the world, just how the world looks at humility, like if you go back to the first century, 2,000 years ago, 
It was a repulsive concept. I mean, it was just plain repulsive to the Greeks and the Romans. We didn't even want to be humble. That was considered, like, why? <laughs> well, they were fleshly men, right? Fleshly people. This idea, why, why not have yourself as the center? I mean, remember, these are the people you walk down the Colosseum, you know, and all these uh, uh, statues of people, you know, that have accomplished all the great things in the uh, Olympics, in the Olympia. No, they, they were all about themselves. Everything was about them. God comes along through Christ, and he says, you know what the first characteristic of a truly pleasing life to me, uh, for, me to, uh, for you to have in your life it's not pride, it's not you the center, it's humility. Let others uh, be the center. You know the verse, James 4, 6, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Again, why? Because pride literally, the word literally means stretching the neck. You ever have someone that stretches the neck? By the way, we, we, let me say as parents, you've got to be careful with your children. Don't let them stretch the neck too far. Sometimes we're, sometimes we're layering on pride and not even realize. We call it love and caring. It's really, you're just, you're just instilling arrogance in them. They think they're the number one in the universe. They're not the number one. If they don't find out about it in your house, they will someday. And if they don't find out about it on this earth, they will certainly on Judgment Day, right? They're not the number one. I mean, that's not an unloving thing. That's reality. So again, we don't, you know, we, we want to love and, and uh, help but again, they're not the center. See, pride, I think I got it out of the book, to be honest with you, that little book that we're using in uh, uh, ABF. Pride seeks to ungod God. <laughs> That's why he hates it so much. Let's face it, when we came to Christ, what did we have to do? We had to have a very humble opinion of ourselves, right? We had to admit the fact that our sin condemned us before God's holiness, that he was going to judge us and at any moment. We had to understand that we were sinners. We had no righteousness of our own. And we had to willingly ask Christ to save us because he is the Savior. He's the one that took my sin on the cross. He became the propitiation. He's the substitute. That's humility right there. To come to Christ, you had to be humbled. You had to ask for his grace and mercy through Christ. And that was the only way, right? So really, all, all, all God is saying in uh, that first word is, as you came to Christ, continue in Christ. Have lowliness of mind. One guy said this, you know how, do you get, you know how you get uh, humility? The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. And obviously, that's God. That's why you get into the Word of God. Because the more you see God, the smaller you become. And that's a really good place to be. That is a really good place to be. Because now it's not about me, it's about Him. So, humility is seen when God is the center of your world, not you. That's what I'm trying to say. God is the center of your world. And you actually accept that. But the other thing is this, and this plays right into the passage. The other way that humility is expressed is about living in community. See, not only is God the center, you're not, but your brothers and sisters are also part of there because that's, that's who God uh, desires for us to live in community. See, if you make it about you, you will never live in community. If you make it about you, you'll never live in community because you don't need it. But humility, lowliness says, I need you. We need each other. And it goes back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done, what? Through selfish ambition or conceit, but what? In lowliness. Right there it is. Right there, that's the word. Lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. What? Let each of you look out, not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. In other words, I'm... I'm here to serve. I'm here to give. I'm not here to get. That's the, that's the first word. I mean, again, transition. Chapters one, two, th- 1 through 3 is position. Now we get in the practical side. What's the first thing he's talking about? Lowliness. You want to glorify God? Have lowliness, humility in your life. 
about the second word, gentleness? Humility always produces gentleness. I want you to remember that. Humility, lowliness, always produces this next characteristic, gentleness. Now, this word is not, and I want to emphasize, because sometimes, some of your versions even say not gentleness, but meekness. The King James, you know, meekness is weakness, and, you know, oh, woe is me. It, it doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean shy. It doesn't mean cowardly. The word gentleness or meekness uh, literally means a power under control. Used of a horse, you've heard this before. Mighty stallion, but under control so he can be used. We have, when you first get saved, in one sense you're like out of control, biblically. Now God is, is as, as you have lowliness in your mindset, gentleness will follow. Jesus used both of these words, lowly and um, uh, gentleness, when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. B- both those words right there. Lowly used first and, and gentle. So again, this is a characteristic of our Lord. By the way, did Jesus ever, um, was he always like walking around with his head stooped? You know, whitewashed sepulchers, that's tombs. Woe to you, vipers! He was a very strong man. Very passionate. Very pointed. In fact, he said truth so strong. With authority, they killed him at the end. Right? So again, you can be very strong, truthful, authoritative, and yet still be meek, still be gentle. But again, we have to have this second characteristic. Gentleness is the opposite of being self-assertive. There again, the idea of a lowly. And concerned with self-interest. It's not. Self, again, is not in the picture. It is the disposition of the spirit in which we accept God's dealing with us as good. In other words, God is good. He's dealing with me as good. It's able to trust in God's goodness. That's the point. See, I can be gentle, and I've noticed over the years, and I trust that you have too, as lowliness has been cemented into your life, gentleness as well. See, gentleness keeps people steady. I want you to understand this. See, an ungentle person is one who something happens, and he responds, and blows, and irritated, and things come out of the mouth that he shouldn't have. A gentle person is steady. Because when the thing happens, you just say, well, God is sovereign. I'm walking with Jesus. Things are happening that are going to promote my spiritual growth. And I can continue down this path. I don't have to react. A gentle person is proactive. Not quickly irritated. uh, Not quick and explosive in the response. They are steady. They are level, if you will. That's why, because they trust in God's goodness. I'll tell you what, you have to go back to the position here. <laughs> Chosen before the foundation of the world. I was, I was just chewing on that last night. Lord, where would I be if you didn't choose me? Damned. 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 Well, whatever God allows in my life is not that. So I can learn to be gentle. Have I always been gentle? No. (laughs) I like how Paul Tripp said, as it relates to people, gentleness means, quote, I don't see your need. By the way, your need might be a weakness, it might be a sin, it might be a failure. But I don't see your need as a hassle or as an interruption. End quote. Why are parents sometimes not gentle? Because they see their kids as an interruption. Why are church people together sometimes not gentle? Because you're an irritant. Why have sometimes elders and deacons meeting not gone real well? This was years ago, or going like this years ago. Because that weakness was seen as a hassle. But you get lowliness of mind, now you get a gentle spirit, you know. He goes on, trip. Gentleness submits to the plan of God. I experience joy when dealing with others' issues because I see God's hand in their life and in mine. 
End quote. So how do you respond to those who exhaust your resources, I would say? Exhaust your time, exhaust your money, exhaust your emotional energy, maybe even exhaust your friendship. How do you respond to them? See, if God is the center, I'm not saying that, yeah, you know, I I love going through trials, but what I say is, God is good and he's working. That's gentle. You're level then. How about number three? Patience. Again, common word, macrothumia. We've mentioned it many times. Macro, big, thumia, passion. Big with passion. What do you mean? Big with passion as you live life, as you deal with people, as you go through circumstance. Big passion. Long-lasting passion. Passion in the sense of not giving up. That's the third word, patience. Again, I'm going to quote uh, Tripp. Uh, boy, if you're not in one of those home groups that is going through uh, community as, what is it called? Community as a process, or anyways. But that Paul Tripp is, you know, we've been using, what a great resource. What a great, I, I trust that all of you will sometime be able to see that. And if you haven't done it, you can still get in one. It's excellent. But he says in that particular series at the end, patience celebrates the process. See, growth is a process, rarely an event. Don't you, you like it when it's an event in your kid's life. You know, they're dealing with the sin issue. Let's take parenting. They're dealing with this thing. You tell them, you confront them. Yes, dad, you're exactly right. And they move in a different direction. I mean, isn't that great when that happens? Yes, I am a good parent. Rarely happens like that. Parenting. Your growth, your spiritual growth, each one of our spiritual growth, process, not event. Patience celebrates the process, i.e., okay, walking with this person, first year, second year, third year, kind of getting a little bumpy here, fourth year, really bumpy, macrothumia, stay passionate, going to keep walking with this person. Why? Because I'm not looking at your progress or mine as an event. It's a process. So I'll stick with you. Not because, by the way, I don't stick with you because I trust you. I hope you know that. I don't stick with you. You don't stick with me because I trust you. You trust me. We stick with each other because we've been placed in the body of Christ. That's what glorifies him. That's the motivation. Because if you stick with me only because you trust me, as soon as you don't trust me, what are you going to do? Jump ship. No, no. I'm going to stick with you because that's God's plan. God is most glorified when his church is unified. So we have patience. See, God is raising oaks for his glory. He's not raising lettuce. You know, some of you plant gardens. Uh, Actually, we did a really nice garden this year, but it was mostly because of my wife and my son. But the point is that sometimes kids, you know, they plant the lettuce and they plant the tomatoes and what do they do? Within a week they're like, Where are, where's the lettuce? Where's the tomato? takes time. Think about an oak. Decades. Decades. What's an old oak, Ed? Help me out here. I don't even know. 50, 60 years would be an old oak? 100. I remember uh, mowing at uh, Jerry Falwell's. I used to be one of the mowers at Jerry Falwell's compound, if you will. I mean, even Virginia. They said they had trees there that was rated at about 300 years. Oh, I think they're either maple or oak. It was pretty neat to, you know, think, wow, this tree was here, you know, back at the, uh, you know, 1776. Same tree. Little. Grows. And, um, but, you know, we are oaks. Takes time. You know, we have to be patient. Patient with God's plan. Through all the circumstances, through all the difficulties. Are you patient? Are you patient with God's plan? Are you patient with other people? I think of, uh, put those two together, God's plan and other people, and you think of Noah building the ark. You know how long, he, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? 120. That's a long time. 120 years. You know, starts the process. I'm sure the neighbors come over. Like, what are you doing, Noah? You know, really? You know, 30th year, really? All you got is like the, you know, the, the ribs of the thing. 
60 years, 70 years. By that, that point, what, what do you think the neighbors are going to be doing? Probably mocking, ridiculing. He had, to be stay, uh, he had to be patient with the project, the boat. He also had to be patient with the people that I'm assuming would have mocked. And He was patient. Why? Because, why? because he saw God. God was the center of his life. That's why he you know, remained uh, passionate about what God had called him to do. So we see that throughout Scripture. The word patience primarily refers to people, but it also refers to the things that God is accomplishing in your life as you deal with people. So are you patient? And do you see how these work together? Lowliness falls into gentleness. Gentleness, you can be gentle like that. Patience would be long term. It's not just a, we're not a, a sprinters, we're marathoners. So humility says, I'm not the focus. Gentleness says, I will not be self-assertive. But that leads to patience, which means I am ready to follow God's will and serve his people with passion and endurance. I'll do it long term. That is very effective as it comes to the watching world. How about the fourth one? Bearing with one another in love. Bearing. I believe the word patience has to do with all people. I think bearing has specifically to do with other Christians. Why? Because it says this, bearing with one another. That's a very common... Oh, he's talking about Christians. Christians are Christians. Again, bearing with one another in love. It's hard sometimes to be hurt by an unbeliever. It's even more so if it's a Christian. And I think that's why Paul puts this in. Listen, you're not going to be hurt by the world. They already hate you. But you're going to sometimes be hurt by the very people that actually love me as well. But you're just going to have a conflict and you're going to get hurt. So how do you deal with it? And again, to jettison, first of all, you have to, in love, that's the foundation. What is love? Love is agape. Love means self-sacrifice. It means I'm no longer the lowliness, right? I'm, I mean, I am lowly and hard. In other words, I can be sacrificial, self-sacrificial, because it's not about me. So that's why he adds. I think, I think when you go from the word lowliness all the way to in love, they're kind of like, is the, it's kind of like uh, uh, all-encompassing right there. Why? Because in Corinthians 13, it says love is what? Unconquerable, invincible, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's why in 1 Peter 4, it says, Above all, have fervent love for one another, for, for love will cover a multitude of transgressions. But the idea of fervent love means have stretched love. Sometimes God, you know, we get kind of uh, proud. We think we've kind of, you know, we're, we're pretty good. We're really moving along on this Christian thing well. And God gives you someone else. And what he does is he wants to do that stretching love. Stretched. Not break. Not break. Stretch. Do you have someone in your life right now that God wants you to stretch your love towards? And you're just giving a real hard time. You know, Lord, you don't understand. <laughs> you don't understand. That's what we say to God. You don't understand. No, he understands. He wants to stretch our love. He wants to stretch us, bear with one another. He wants us to endure the wrong, suffer the slight. Why? Because of love. Like what, how one, says, one guy says it. God will take you where you do not want to go to produce in you what you could not, could not be achieved on your own. Is God taking you there? He wants to take you where you would not go to produce in you what you could not produce on your own. He's stretching you. Are you being stretched? Because again, this is not my final destination. My final destination is heaven. So he's stretching all of us. He's all, and, I, and part of wisdom is actually identifying the areas in your life that he's stretching. Oh, I see what you're doing, Lord. I see why you brought that person in my life. I see why you brought that group into my life. That's wisdom. Now, you put those four things together, lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, then says this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you can keep. Now, he says the word keep. Why? Because it's already been established. When you were brought into the body, that's unity. Now he says, I want you to run the Christian life with your brothers and sisters and to keep that unity. Keep the unity. And again, two things have to be said about this. 
well, three actually. One is you have to have humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another if you're going to keep the unity. That's the first thing. Those go in steps. The second is, as I just said, the Spirit of God has given it already to us. Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. He gave it to us. At the moment you were saved, yes, Lord, you're the only Savior and you received Him. You were placed spiritually into the body of Christ. But the third thing is this. We have to exert ourselves to keep the unity. That word endeavoring means literally to exert. And the word to keep means to guard. To guard very carefully. Guard the unity. Very carefully. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We have to be careful here. Don't just stumble through life. Guard it. Why? Because Satan, if God is glorified when the church is unified, when God is glorified when the church is practically unified, what is Satan going to try to do? He's going to try to disrupt. That's why Corinthians, remember the Corinthian church? Factious, proud, arrogant babes in Christ. You should have been farther along. Oh, Satan was having a heyday. Why? Because God was not being glorified through that local assembly. No, we have to guard it. So that's what we need to do. Verses 1 to 3 uh, is really about what we are called to do because of our position. Let's just end very quickly with verses 4, 5, and 6. Because this is where God is saying, let me tell you the position again. He's going back to, let me tell you what I've already done for you. I'm I'm telling you to exert yourself, (coughs) which means sometimes you're going to be maligned. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be mightily hurt by even someone that might be even a Christian. How are you going to deal with that? Well, let me tell you what I've already done. That's what God says in verses 4 through 6. And it's found in unity. First of all, the unity of the Spirit. That's verse 4. The unity of the Lord, verse 5. And the unity of the Father, verse 6. He goes back and he says, listen, these are realities in your life. First one, unity in the Spirit. Notice there's seven of them. Seven is the, uh, the idea of completion. <laughs> hey, I've given you everything that you need for life and godliness. I've given you everything that you need for life and godliness in the body, he would say. First of all, unity in the spirit. There is one body. He's referring to the body of Christ. And he's using the word body as a metaphor for, again, the church. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, I just read that. For by one spirit we were all baptized, that's spiritually, into the body. Again, think of a body, organic organism that continues to grow by cells being duplicated. Not like a machine. It's not like taking a a piece and and building a, a Xerox copier. We're an organic organism, a living organism in Christ and and our growth is by multiplication, multiplication of cells. And every time a person gets, uh, becomes a Christian, he's placed into the body. And we grow. And the body continues to grow. But we're interdependent. Corinthians 12.21 says, Can the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? Nor again the feet, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you? No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And he goes on, we'll look at that next week. But the point is, is this. We are an interconnected, interdependent body. God says, listen, I know you're going to say, it's hard to live with other Christians. And he says, you know what? But there's one body. Next thing, one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Well, what has the Spirit of God done? Let, Let me give you what he did to bring you to Christ. Just to bring you to Christ. He, first of all, awakened us to our sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You couldn't awake to anything. He awakened us. That we had violated his law. That all was not right between us and God. That indeed, because of our sin, we were under his wrath. Then the Spirit supernaturally placed the new life of Christ within our hearts so that we could change and so that we could believe. He, in other words, he made us alive. He gave us the gift of faith. And I know some of you say, well, no, I believe, then I was made alive. Dead people can't believe. You had to have a moment of being made alive so that you could believe. And by the way, where do you get the faith? You had the faith given to you. That's what Ephesians is saying. No, I got smart one day. No, you didn't. It was the glorious grace of Christ 
through the Spirit of God that raised you from the dead so that you could believe. And then, and once you put your faith in Christ, you were justified, brought into the family, adopted, as we read earlier, and now you're on this process of sanctification. I think he uses that, those couple words, and one spirit, just to remind you. Remember how you got here? I didn't get here because I got smart. I got here because I was chosen. I got here, and I remain here because the Spirit of God is in me. If you could lose your salvation, let me just say categorically, you would. If you end up in heaven because you've truly received Jesus Christ, it's because it's been the power of the Spirit of God that has protected your life every step of the way. From the foundation of the world to where you are now, if you end up seeing Jesus at the Bema, which means you're in heaven, that means it was the Spirit of God that did every part of that. That is what's so dishonoring to the Spirit when people say you can lose your salvation. That's like in a microcosm saying, my wife produces junk when it comes to pictures. Portraits. You know, she draws portraits. I'd get a little bit upset. And when you tell the Spirit of God that you can lose your salvation, you know what you're just saying right there? That you're the one that gained in the first place. No, it's not. Read Ephesians carefully. It's through election, calling, he placed you in the body, and he that began a good work in you, what? will finish it until what? The day of Christ. How about this? Just as you were called, it goes back to the word calling, just like he used in verse 1, of which you were called, the calling of which you were called, in one hope. What's this calling? The calling is this, that the hope is this, that we have been placed in the body of Christ. The Christ, the one who died, rose again, is seated at the right hand, and is coming back to judge. That's the hope. So he says, listen, the unity in the Spirit. How about quickly the second, the unity in the Lord? One Lord. Is there just one Lord? We may have to die for that right there, that one statement, one Lord. Right? Because there's other religions that are saying, no, he's God, he's God. No, no, one Lord. It's like Peter said in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That right there might kill you someday, right? Get you killed. But he is the only Lord. He is the only salvation. Acts 4.12, for there is salvation, in, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus Christ can save. And you see what he's doing? He's saying it's the Spirit that brought you into the body. It's the Spirit that's saved as far as applying salvation. It is the Spirit that has, has given you the one hope. Now he's going to Lord and saying, there's only one Lord, and you know him. If you're a Christian, you know him. Oneness, unity, that's the whole point. And then one faith, one faith. Not walk by faith or saving faith. This is the body of faith. What he's saying is there's, it's like Jude 3, our common faith. Jude said this, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. What do you mean faith? That God, our God, is the only true God. That the scriptures and what it says is the only truth. That Jesus is the only salvation. That's the body of faith. And everything else that you could add to it. That he's the only Lord Jesus Christ. God, man, come in the flesh as Messiah. And then six, one baptism. Now, baptism, he's already alluded to in verse 4. So this is actually talking about water baptism. What do you mean? What does water baptism do? Well, we believe in immersion. I know there's immersion being complete because that's what Christ did. At the moment of your salvation, you were completely saved, completely uh, brought into the, uh, the body of Christ. But what, is, what does baptism actually represent? Identification. That you're identifying yourself. And he, I think, brings this up and saying, listen, have you identified yourself with Jesus Christ? By the way, let me ask you that. (laughs) Have you been baptized? Have you identified yourself with Jesus Christ? He is the only Savior in water baptism. But second question is this. Not only should you have uh, identified yourself in water baptism with Christ, but are you identifying with him even to this day? I.e., Do people in your family know you're a Christian? Do people at work know that you are a Christian, identifying yourself with Jesus Christ? Do people in your neighborhood identify you as being a Christian? We're all part of one body. 
identified with one baptism. And then he ends, that's the unity in the Lord, Lord, faith, baptism. And I think the last thing is unity in the Father. One God and Father who is what? Above all, that's sovereignty. Through all, that's omnipotence. In other words, all-powerful. And in you all, that's omnipresence. He's just trying to... This is what he's doing. He's exalting God. Why? Because what is the whole purpose of the church? To exalt God. He just ends by saying, look at how, how grand and glorious. And you know, one of the things I was thinking about is, wait a second. Usually you say, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Here he's put them in reverse order. God the Spirit, what he did. God the Son, what he did, ends with God the Father. Why did he do it in reverse? I think he did it for this reason. He was arguing from a fact to the cause. He was going backwards because he was saying, listen, it was the Spirit that applied what Jesus Christ did, but it was all because the Father was the one that called. And so I think he was trying in, in that last few verses just to wrap up the whole concept of what he's been dealing with in Ephesians. It, it goes down to this. If God had not set his affection on you, you would be damned. But because you are a believer, this is what it says. God has set his affection on you. You were in the slave market of sin. You had absolutely no hope. He came along and purchased you with the sacrifice of his own son. Should that make you thankful? Should that make in the heart of your heart say, Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do? And you know what he says? You want to glorify me? then participate in the church, your fellow believers, in unity. Show lowliness. Show gentleness. Show forbearance. Keep the unity because of all that I did. Live up to your position. Stop living like the heathen (laughs) because I have set my love on you. In that scenario, there is no sacrifice too great to, to sacrifice to him, right? Because he has done it all for us. He has done it all for us. And I hope and I pray that if the Lord was here and says, I know your works, he would see those characteristics and how we function together and that we really truly love him by loving one another. Let's stand as we worship.